Okay, we're continuing together our study in the 30th chapter of our Confession of Faith, the chapter dealing with the Lord's Supper. And we're looking at paragraphs 5 and 6, which deal with the nature of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we're asking ourselves the question, this bread and this wine, what is their nature? And there are two uh, radically opposed schools of thought as to what the nature of the bread and the wine are. And uh, those two schools of thought are set forth in paragraphs 5 and 6 of our Confession. And so the true doctrine about what these elements are and remain is set forth in paragraph 5. And the false doctrine uh, that is promulgated by the Roman Catholic Church is set forth in paragraph 6. So I want to read those two paragraphs and then we'll pick up where we left off last time. It says in paragraph 5, the outward elements in this ordinance, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly in only bread and wine as they were before. So it's saying, yes, the Bible does call the bread and wine the body and blood of Christ, but they're still bread and wine, and they don't become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, those are figurative terms. They're in terms used figuratively. Paragraph 6 says, The doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the ordinance and hath been the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. And that, of course, is a rebuttal of the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, last time we um, described the doctrine that they believe the bread and the wine actually become the literal, uh, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ and uh, that the elements actually become Christ, and that the priest is making a real sacrifice for sin by the offering of Christ's body on the altar, and this is done each time the Mass is performed. So we talked about that last time. And having set forth the view, then we began last time a rebuttal of the view. And the first passage that we looked at was in John six twenty-six to 69 and we saw that the view of the Lord's Supper, this view of transubstantiation, is based on a gross misinterpretation of passages which use metaphorical language to describe spiritual truth, but which, of course, they insist on interpreting literally. So let's turn back, please, to John chapter 6, and we're going to briefly review what we covered last time, and then, God willing, finish covering uh, the rest of that chapter. It's a rather extensive chapter. And um, it is um, a chapter that needs to be viewed as a whole if we're going to rightly grasp um, its meaning. Now, <clears throat> we started at verse 26, and we said it was imperative to understand the context of this passage. Jesus had just got done feeding the 5,000. He'd multiplied the loaves and the fishes. 
Uh, the people wanted to make him a king because they saw him as the welfare king. Here's somebody like Moses who can give us free bread. And, um, and Jesus said in uh, verse 26, Verily I say unto you, seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. So basically they're pursuing Jesus for crass, carnal reasons, namely for the filling of their bellies, not for the meeting of the needs of their soul. And so what he's going to do is he's going to say, look, don't worry about filling your stomachs with literal food. You need to feed your souls with spiritual food. And um, so then in verse 27, he says, labor not for the meat which perishes, that's the literal food, but for the meat which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you. So what's the meat that endures to everlasting life? Well, it's spiritual food for the soul as opposed to physical food for the body. We see the analogy is set up right from the beginning. Um, <clears throat> verse 28, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. And now he begins to identify what this spiritual meat is. It's Christ. And the way we eat the spiritual meat is by believing. Okay. Um, verse 30, they said, therefore, to him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat man in the desert. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I send you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father. Of course, the bread was not given by Moses, it was given by God. He says, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. And so the bread that Moses administered, the manna that came from God, um, was a physical bread. It was a symbol and a type of the true bread that was to come. The bread that fed the body was a type and symbol of the bread that would feed the soul. Um, and of course, Jesus was the fulfillment of that uh, type. He was the anti-type. Okay? Now then, he says, um, verse 33, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. So he identifies himself as the bread of God. Then they said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He gets real plain now. And here is the uh, passage, verse 35 is the key text, along with verse um, 27, verse 27, remember said, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for the meat that endures to everlasting life. Okay, the physical meat, the spiritual meat. And now he, he, he takes in verse uh, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. So coming is equated to eating. That's how you solve hunger. And believing is equated to drinking. That's how you solve thirst. So to, to, to eat and drink of Christ is to come and believe in Christ. It's to come to Christ and believe in Christ. So verse 35 um, sets very clearly um, the fact that coming and believing are equated with eating and drinking. Now, <clears throat> that's where we left off last time. And what we want to do now is notice the repetitive, the repetitive use of the word coming and the word believing in the subsequent verses. Now, just pay attention to how often coming and believing show up, okay? And, of course, he's saying coming 
is the way to solve your spiritual hunger problem and believing is a way to solve your spiritual thirst problem. In other words, coming and believing is the same as eating and drinking. Okay? Now then, he says, verse 36, But I say unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. There's our word believe. Verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There's the coming to Christ. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him, there's our word believe again, may have everlasting life, I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And he said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Now, Joseph clearly was not his father. We know that from the narrative. And we know he came down from heaven because he was incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves, no man can what? Come to me. Except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father, does what? Comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God. He has seen the Father. Verily I say unto you, he that what? Believeth on me, hath everlasting life. Now we've seen the repetition over and over again of coming and believing, and coming and believing, and coming and believing, and coming and believing is the way to meet the need for spiritual hunger, and it's the way to meet the need for spiritual thirst. Okay? Now... Beginning in verse 47 and 48, we have the switch from the literal to the metaphorical. Notice in verse 47, he says, Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Okay, so he now starts talking about the bread of life. He says, your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. That bread couldn't give them eternal life. They ate it, they lived to old age, and they died. Verse 50, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. And so he says, I'm the bread. If you eat of me, you will not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And, of course, the flesh he gave was his body on the cross to die. The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, what they're doing is they're engaging in what we call wooden literalism. They're refusing to see the symbolic meaning of the passage, and they're insisting on taking what is obviously symbolic language and interpreting it literally. And um, this is a, a, a willful blindness. It's a willful stubbornness. It's an effort to take and twist the words of Jesus to make him look like a fool. Now, Jesus refuses to give in to this. Notice he 
presses the analogy further, verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat man and are dead. For he that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so <clears throat> what he's doing here is he's taking the metaphor and he's just filling it out in terms of carrying it out in its various aspects and its various implications. Now, in verse 53 through 56, he fully states the metaphor. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. Now, if we take this to be the Lord's Supper, then it teaches too much. Because if we take this to be the Lord's Supper, then all those, without exception, who partake of the Lord's Supper are saved. Notice verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. Okay? So if you're going to say, okay, that means drinking the, the, the bread and the wine, which are turned into the body and blood of Christ at the Lord's Supper. If you say that that's what that means then every single person who partakes of the Lord's Supper is saved and does go to heaven and possesses eternal life. That's what you're going to have to say. And so if one does not partake, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except or unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What, he, what that's saying then, if, if this is a reference to the Lord's Supper and transubstantiation, if one does not partake, one cannot be saved. So if you never partake of the Lord's Supper, no matter how much you believe the gospel and trust in Christ and all that, you can't be saved. And if you do partake the Lord's Supper, whether you have faith or not, you are saved. If you're going to literalize this as, as they do. And so if, if verse 53 and verse 54 are talking about the Lord's Supper, then faith is excluded and unnecessary for salvation. The only requirement is the ability to eat and the ability to be at a communion service. And if you can eat and you can be at a communion service, you have eternal life. That's what it's teaching if you're going to take it literally. Okay? So when you take this stuff literally, you see it starts proving too much. Furthermore, it's interesting to note that Jesus was not offering here any symbols or substitutes of his flesh and blood, like bread and wine. He was offering only his literal flesh and blood. No bread and wine was mentioned or even hinted at as any substitute or beginning uh, item to work with here. There's no bread and wine in view. And so he had just said in verse 47, notice, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And then in verse 54, he says, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has 
eternal life. Now, which is it? He just said in verse 47 that belief was required, and now he's saying in verse 54 that eating is required. Now, which way of salvation is it? Are you going to have the salvation of verse 47 that's achieved solely by believing, or are you going to have the salvation of verse 54, which is solely by eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Christ? Obviously, to take this and to try to apply this passage to the Lord's Supper is ludicrous because the Lord's Supper hadn't even been instituted yet. Bread and wine are not in view or under discussion at this point in time. And if you try to make it and insert it into this passage retrospectively, then what you wind up with is salvation by mastication and consumption rather than salvation through belief and faith. Now, notice verse 60. It says, Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he says, Does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? That is, go back to heaven. Would you then believe he came down from heaven? Notice verse 63. It's the Spirit that quickeneth or makes alive, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, if salvation were by eating the literal flesh of Christ, then why would he say the flesh profits nothing? We thought the flesh, if you ate it, gave eternal life. Why are you now saying it profits nothing? Well, he goes on to say, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, these are spiritual words. These are words that have spiritual meaning. And in their spiritual meaning, they convey life. But not in their literal meaning. That is, in terms of them being uh, purely and, and merely flesh. Okay? So if eating his flesh was necessary to eternal life, why would he say the flesh profits nothing? He wouldn't. So notice Peter's response. Verse 64, But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Notice, believed not. See, he's returning back to the issue of belief once again. <clears throat> Verse 65 he said, therefore, I said to you, no man can come to me. There's our word coming again, right? Believing and coming. He, he comes right back to it, okay? Except that we're given to him and my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back to walk no more with him. Then Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we want to take a bite out of your arms so we can eat your flesh and drink your blood. Now that's not what he said in verse 69, did he? He says, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. See, Peter understood it was about belief. And so, <clears throat> the question is, is if this isn't talking about the Lord's Supper, which it isn't, what is it talking about? What's the meaning of this metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? 
Well, eating is when you take something which is outside of yourself and separate from yourself and you receive it into yourself so it becomes an inseparable part of who you are. You all did that this morning when you ate breakfast. Where was that food? It was on the table. It was separate from you. It was outside of you. It wasn't part of you. And you picked it up and you put it in your mouth and you chewed it and you swallowed it and you digested it so that what was outside was received inside and it and it, and, it, and it came into union with your person. Okay? And so Christ was outside of and separate from these people, and he was telling them that they must receive him into their lives so that he comes into an inseparable and indissoluble union with them. Eating and drinking is an act of reception. When you eat and drink, you're not a producer, you're a consumer. You're receiving something. Okay? And eating and drinking is not only an act of reception, it's also an act of assimilation. Where what you eat and drink then becomes part of you. It indwells you, if you will. Okay? And you integrate it into every fiber of your being. So faith in Christ does the same thing. We receive Christ and we enter into a union with Christ so that he permeates every part of our life. Notice verse 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, what? Dwells in me and I in him. He's talking about this indwelling of us in Christ and Christ in us. And, and so... What he's doing is he's using a very powerful metaphor in the physical realm to describe an equally powerful reality in the spiritual realm. Uh, you remember it says in John 1 and verse 12, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who what? Believe in his name. To receive is to believe. And when you receive food into your, into your mouth and you eat it, Okay, it becomes part of your being and it, it indwells you, if you will, <laughs> uh, literally. And when you receive Christ, uh, he also indwells you and uh, you come into union with him. So this metaphor of feeding upon Christ simply is a word picture to illustrate the necessity of believing on him and trusting in him so that his person saturates our life and our being. And what he's doing is describing the degree of intimacy and union that we're to have with Christ through coming to him and believing in him. And when we come to him and believe in him, we have as intimate of a union with him as we have with food when we pick it up and eat it and swallow it. And so this passage has no relationship to the communion service whatsoever. It only describes in a symbolic and metaphorical way the intimacy of the union we have with Christ and the way in which we achieve that union by coming and believing. We eat and drink of the manna which has come down from heaven and the uh, the, the, the type in the Old Testament where the children of Israel ate the manna and it sustained their physical life. Now we eat the true manna, the Lord Jesus, by 
coming to Him and believing on Him. So we have spiritual and eternal life and we'll never die when we eat that manna like they did when they ate the old one. And the old manna was given by God, not by Moses. And the new manna is given by God. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you see is that when people are looking for an excuse to not believe or not embrace the teaching that's given, then they will take the words and they will twist them around to make them seem as foolish and ludicrous as possible. And that's exactly what was going on here. Jesus gave abundant clues as to the meaning of the passage. The Lord's Supper was not in view here. What was in view? The feeding of the 5,000. That's what was in view. There were no symbols used here. There was no bread and wine introduced into the passage. It was the body and blood of Christ alone. So when he gave his body on the cross and he shed his blood on the cross and we believe in him and that atoning work that he did for us, then we are flooded with spiritual nourishment that gives us spiritual life forever. Thus the meaning of the passage. Are there any questions or observations you'd like to make about the passage? Caleb? Yeah, and you know, it's all very natural. We use figures of speech constantly as we talk to each other, and we don't even take note of it. It's just so automatic that we get it um, that we uh, don't have a problem. Jesus taught in parables constantly, and this is just another parable. Eating and drinking is a parable like the parable of the sower or the parable of... of um, the dragnet or the parable of the treasure hidden in the field or any of those things. And um, so we have to understand the Bible is full of symbolic and metaphorical language. And, you know, there's an old saying in interpretation that when the, when the, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. But when the plain sense doesn't make good sense, then you better seek another sense. And it doesn't make any sense that salvation is through eating the body and blood of Christ. And we're going to see many, many reasons why that's the case, but just on the face of it, um, anyone who spends any time reading the Bible understands very clearly that salvation is by coming to Christ and by believing in Christ. And um, so to try to literalize symbolic passages is to try to make the Bible and Christ look foolish. You see the unbelievers doing this all the time. They make mockery of the scriptures and say, well, you know, if you're a Christian, then, then you can't wear two different types of clothing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's true. The Bible did forbid wearing uh, mixed clothing in the Old Testament. You couldn't wear, you know, one garment that was made of, of wool and another garment that was made of cotton. Um, but there was a reason for that. It was tied to a covenantal period and it's no longer applicable to us any more than the dietary restrictions are. Um, but you see people grabbing stuff and trying to make us look foolish um, and hypocritical and not obeying the scriptures and picking and choosing which scriptures we want to obey because they you know, refuse to acknowledge the fact that the Bible has uh, positive laws that come and go based on various covenantal administrations uh, throughout the unfolding of redemptive history.
So, um, you know, we, we might say, somebody says, wow, it's really hot out there. And you say, yeah, it's hotter than an oven out there. Well, it's not, okay? But you're just using a metaphor. Um, you couldn't cook stuff out there. But um, we say those things. We use hyperbole um, and figures of speech all the time to convey with vividness and with uh, power and punch what we're trying to get across. All right, well, that disposes then of that passage. Next time, we'll look at the gospel accounts in which Jesus said regarding the bread, this is my body and the cup, the wine. He says, this is my blood. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that next time. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the wonder of the union that we can enjoy and have with Jesus Christ that He is not a Savior who stands aloof and outside and distant, but He is a Savior who is close and intimate and engrafted, as it were, into our very lives. Father, we thank You that we can dwell in Him and He can dwell in us. And we thank You, Father, that this metaphor is is not a stretch to describe the nature of coming into union with Christ and that the union that we come into in the physical realm with food is an apt metaphor of the union that we come into with Christ when we believe in Him and and come to Him. Father, we ask that You might help us to be like Peter and to say that we believe and are sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God and thereby receive him into our lives. The whole Christ, body and blood, all that he is, all that he was, all that he did, not just a part of him, but all of him we receive, both his person and his work. Father, we pray that this um, reception of Christ might be something that we do not only initially in salvation, but every day that we would Receive Christ again by communing with Him and fellowshipping with Him and praying to Him and reading His Word so that that union and communion with Christ, that consumption of Christ, if you will, would be something that where every day we get up and take Him anew and afresh into our hearts. Father, we ask that you might help us to rightly understand and interpret the Word of God so that We would not um, twist the scriptures to our own destruction, but rather understand them to our own salvation. May the Spirit of God be our teacher and illuminator and lead us into that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.